Last time in Acts 14, we saw Paul and Barnabas begin the return from their first missionary journey, and they've returned to Antioch, the then current base of operations for the church. Uh, they've returned to Antioch, and they've, but they've been preaching salvation through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. And this morning, as we turn the page to Acts 15, we're going to, to see questions about the content of that message. Why does this matter today? What does Scripture say? What does Scripture say to us? And why does it matter today? Well, Acts 15 begins, there are some men who come down from Judea. And they begin teaching the brothers, and they say, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Hold the phone. What? What is this? This is like an update from the home office. <laughs> Jerusalem and Judea was the starting point of the church in Acts chapter 2. And focus, as we've seen, has shifted to Antioch in these last few chapters, but Jerusalem is where it all began. And, and some men have come down, and they've begun to add some fine print to the salvation message. In essence, everything that Paul and Barnabas have shared in all of these cities, as we've seen, to all of these folks who've come to the faith, everything that's been shared concerning Jesus as the sole means for salvation is now being called into question. And what they're hearing is, no circumcision, no salvation. Whatever in the world, what is that, why does that matter now? Okay, a quick reminder about, about circumcision, uh, just to make sure we're all on the same page here. John Polehill, who was a professor in Louisville from my seminary days a couple of decades ago, he wrote, he wrote the following in an article in a, in a theological encyclopedia about circumcision. I'm just going to hit the high points. Circumcision is the, is the act of excising or removing by cutting out the foreskin of the male genital. And the provisions of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, call for the circumcision of every Israelite male, as well as every servant, and even the folks who were the non-Israelites, the resident aliens, who wanted to be a part of Passover ceremony. And later on, circumcision of infants became the established practice. And the priestly account in Genesis 17 traces circumcision all the way back to Father Abraham. Okay? To Abraham. And interprets this as a mark of membership in God's covenant people. And so what we're seeing, as Pole Hill continues, there are those in the early Jewish Christian faith. Again, these Jews which have seeing Jesus as the fulfillment of all which the law and the prophets shared, what happens is that they insist that there can be no membership in the new community of faith without this covenant mark of circumcision. They're hung up on this. And so we see that Paul and Barnabas, they have this heated argument and a debate. And so these from Judea, they insist... They determine that Paul and Barnabas and, and some others, they should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles. And again, the apostles are the ones who saw Jesus in action. Peter, James, John. 
to go talk about this issue. Go back to the home office. So they do. And after being sent, they're on their way. Paul and Barnabas, they're passing through areas like Phoenicia and, and Samaria, and they're describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles. And, and they're bringing great joy to all, all the brothers and the sisters. You see, Paul and Barnabas, they, they've not been preaching salvation through circumcision or keeping the law, adhering to those letters of the law. They've been preaching salvation through Jesus. And, and, and most of the time when Paul and Barnabas, as we've seen, when they show up in Acts, they go straight to the synagogue and they prove that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one found in, these, in the Old Testament prophecies. They're preaching Jesus as the one who deals with sin. So they arrive in Jerusalem. They're received by the church and the apostles and the elders. And then they begin to tell what all God has been doing through them. But there's a group in that, in that, in the group of Jewish Christians, there's a sect of Pharisees who've come to the faith. They've come to see Jesus as the Messiah. But this is what they say. It's necessary to circumcise. It's necessary to circumcise these new believers and to direct them to keep the law of Moses. Again, more fine print. So the law of Moses. All right, real quick, reminder. What is the law of Moses? You have the Ten Commandments. You have these morality laws, community laws, dietary laws. Lots of, at first, odd-sounding stuff found in the first five books of the Bible. This is what we need to remember about the law of Moses. The law of Moses diagnoses the presence and the reality of sin. Much like our laws today. Our traffic laws, our civil laws, our federal laws, they let us know when there's a problem. Sin is a result of man's broken relationship with God, and the law of Moses diagnoses the presence and the reality of sin. And this is why the law of God applies to all people throughout all of history. The law also gives statutes which counter these sins, but it's very intensive. Really, it's impossible for man to uphold these laws. And we saw in Acts 13, just a couple of chapters ago, when Paul and Barnabas, they're speaking in the synagogue, and they say this. Paul says, Therefore let it be known to you, this is Acts chapter 13, verse 38. Let it be known to you, brothers, that through Jesus forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you and me. Through Jesus and his cross, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which we could not be freed through the law of Moses. Jesus sets free where the law does not. Again, the law points out the reality of our broken relationship with God due to our sin. The law reveals both the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man, and the law shows us our need to have our sins forgiven. All right, the apostles and the elders, they come together to look at this matter. They must be Baptists. They have this committee formed. <laughs> they look at this. Going to hash this out, right? And after there had been much debate, Peter, yes, Peter, he stands up and he says, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And what Peter's talking about, 
the events to which he is referring in Acts chapter 10 and 11 when, when Peter has the vision about the sheet and all the unclean animals and the Lord says, rise, kill, and eat. And he says, whoa. Peter says, God who knows the heart testified to the Gentiles giving them the same Holy Spirit just as he did us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Since this is the case, why are you putting God to the test by placing on the neck of these disciples this yoke which we can't bear? Our Jewish forefathers couldn't bear it, and we can't bear all of this heavy weight of trying to be saved through the law. But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as these Gentiles also are. Here's the thing. Circumcision is not really the issue here. That's brought up. That's the talking point. But that's not the real issue. So Jake, what is the real issue here? Well, something which we all have. Preferences. Preferences. What do I mean? Well, these Pharisees, already circumcised, they, they've become believers in Jesus. They can't become uncircumcised. However, it's their preference that these new believers travel the exact same route to Jesus that they have had to follow. Almost like, well, I had to suffer through it. You have to as well. <laughs> Why does this matter to us today? Why does this matter to us today? It's not circumcision, but we do the same thing. Even though, even though we've heard over and over that Jesus is the means for our salvation, we get caught up in our behavior as salvation criteria. That's our default. Questions like, are we doing enough of the right things to make it to heaven? Are we doing more of the good and less of the bad? And when we do this, we, we begin to use our behaviors, our experience, as a measuring tool, not just for ourselves, but for evaluating others. And what results is a problem of preference. We, we don't intend to do this, but it's simply what happens. I'm going to give you two examples. Two examples. In the late 1990s, Southern Baptist churches began to introduce elements of what was referred to at the time as contemporary Christian music and worship. Our Pentecostal and charismatic brothers and sisters in the faith, they had been using guitars and drums and some such for years, but it was new to us. <laughs> and in 30 years of serving on the staff of various churches, oh, the stories I could tell. The stories I could tell about resistance to what is now commonplace in most churches. Back in the day, when introducing new things, I heard everything from, well, I didn't have to be entertained when I was growing up, all the way to, well, it looks and sounds like a nightclub. 
which is kind of funny because these folks who were making this criticism didn't really look like they had ever darkened the door of a nightclub in order to make that claim, but maybe they were feeling the need to make confession. I don't know. <laughs> what was being communicated? The problem of preference and worship experience. And like these Pharisees and circumcision, it became a means of evaluation and validation on a spiritual level, which is not at all appropriate. Even in these days, it's not appropriate. And in some cases, it resulted in very judgmental accusations about personal faith relationship with Jesus. For instance... They, they, they were a one-service church, and then when they started experimenting with different styles, they, they had two hours, two separate hours, and then, oh my goodness, you couldn't believe some of these folks who had lived together and worshipped together and served together for years, some of the awful things they were saying about one another. It was not appropriate. Another example. An old friend of mine who is now in the presence of the Lord. He was in one of my musical groups. And he was not at all a fan of non-traditional worship practice. He was a faithful church member. He was a faithful attender, a faithful supporter. He was a friend. I, I enjoyed him. I enjoyed conversations and spending time with him. And when we'd go out and we'd sing in nursing homes together and sharing meals. I enjoyed him, and I, and I believe he enjoyed me. But he, he had issues with non-traditional instruments and, and the less formal atmosphere of the contemporary-style church. And, and one way it played out, one way it played out was dress attire on Sunday mornings. It, it was his preference that everyone should dress to his standard. He made a statement one time that I've never forgotten. He said, I just believe that God hears you better when you pray if you're wearing a coat and tie. What? He said, I just believe that God hears you better when you pray if you're wearing a coat and tie. Well, I smiled and I went on. There was no need for me to ask him to show me in Scripture where that was found, because it's not in there. And there wasn't any need for me to ask him that, because that would have just simply been very obnoxious on my part. No need to do that. He, he's a friend. This was simply his preference. And this became his means of evaluating others. His experience, and he thought everyone should have the exact same experience which he had. And we've all done it. We've all done it. You see... Our preferences can be a problem. Preferences are fine to have. We're, we're not the same people. We're not wired the same. Preferences are fine to have. We're all different. But 99% of the time, 99% of the time, 
preferences aren't biblical doctrine. Now, if you have biblical doctrine inform your preference, that's, that's appropriate. <laughs> but just to simply have preferences does not make them biblical canon. Peter said this morning in verse 11, he said, we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. In the same way as these Gentiles also are saved. So hey, great news, great news. If we trust Jesus, then we don't need the law. Scrap the law, right? No, not exactly. <laughs> not exactly. A word about Jesus and the law. Jesus and the law are connected. They're connected. And what a lot of folks forget is that when Jesus preached, He didn't use the book of Romans. He didn't use the letter of 1 John or, or the letter to Philemon or Revelation. Jesus preached from the Law and the Prophets. He used the Old Testament, showing Himself as the fulfillment of all that was written. And as we're seeing in the book of Acts, as we've seen these last several months, this is exactly what Peter and, and Paul and Barnabas and James and John, this is what they do. It, the basis of the New Testament, what the basis of the New Testament teaches is rooted in the Old Testament. And, and, and Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 5, during the Sermon on the Mount, that he is the fulfillment of the law. Jesus did not come to destroy the law. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, he said, Do not presume that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I, I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill. And then he said this, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke of a letter, and what that means in the Hebrew language of the Old Testament, that, that's referring to consonants and vowels. Consonants and vowels, the smallest ones, will not pass from the law until all is accomplished. Yeah, amen. You see, if, if you and I trust in Jesus to take care of sin, if we trust in Jesus to take care of sin, what you and I are doing, we are acknowledging the reality of sin as defined by the law of Moses. Sin is defined by the law and is given diagnosis by the law. And the law, thanks be to God, points to the cure for sin found in Jesus. Jesus is the cure. A sacrifice which will pay the debt of sin. Jesus is the full and final atoning sacrifice. Jesus and the law are intertwined. They're intertwined. The law doesn't pass away. Regardless if we would prefer that it would. If one ignores the law, one in essence ignores Jesus. If one ignores the law, one is really ignoring Jesus. Because if we ignore the fact that we're sinners, we really don't need salvation from sin if we don't believe we're sinners. Keeping the law doesn't save us. It, it never has. Circumcision or dietary laws or what have you, that doesn't save us. But we respect God's law 
Because we are saved. Keeping the law doesn't save us. But respecting God's law, we do that because we are saved. And we trust in the grace of Jesus. But grace is not something to be abused. There is a responsibility in, in receiving grace. And we, we, we pastors, we preachers, we, we have a responsibility to communicate the responsibility of grace. One thing we see in, in the Gospels and throughout the New Testament is Jesus as Savior, but He's not only Savior. Jesus is Lord. The, the earliest Christian creeds say Jesus is Lord. And you can't have one without the other. You can't have Jesus as Savior and not Jesus as Lord. We've seen in New Testament teaching that if we want to experience Jesus' grace as Savior, we have to listen to what He tells us as Lord. Regardless of our preferences. The beauty of His grace is the reality that keeping the law doesn't save us whether it be circumcision or what have you, it doesn't save us. But because we can be saved by God's Son, Jesus, we are to respect God's law. But we're saved by God's Son. We're saved through Jesus alone. And, and today, as it was then, and has been down through the centuries, and is still the case today, and will be until our glorious Savior and Lord returns. Jesus wants to be Savior of the soul today, and He wants to be the Lord of life today. Let's pray together. Lord, in this part of Acts 15, as this first missionary journey is coming to a close, we, we see a bit of a hiccup a bit of fine print wanting to be popped up based solely on someone's religious druthers. Father, the reason that hits so close to home really for all of us is because we've all done those same things. We want our experience to be everyone else's. But Father, it's through the grace of Jesus alone that we're able to have access to you. The law reveals the sad reality that we are broken. We are broken and we are sin tainted. And it's only through the grace of your Son that we're able to have access back to you. We're able to have peace with you and a home and eternity with you because of Jesus going to the cross for us. That's what Scripture tells us the whole way through. So Father, help us to, to rest in the reality of, of salvation coming from Your Son. That is Him and, and, and His Word, that that's our criteria. Those things that, which may be bumps in the road for us, things which may be difficulties for us. Father, in Your grace, in these moments, show to us 
those hang-ups, those, those things that perhaps we use as tools of evaluation for everyone else. Father, we're thankful for the wonderful grace of Jesus shown to us. We're thankful for the access that we have to you through him. We're thankful that because Jesus has gone to pay our debt of sin on the cross and pay it in total and pay it in full, that we're able to stand in your presence. And we will on that day when your son returns. It's in your son's strong name we pray and we trust and we worship. Amen.